If you had more time in the day, would you take a nap, read a book, talk with a friend? When something's important to you, it's easier to make time for it. Therapy can help you decide what matters most. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on your schedule. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com opinion today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com opinion. I'm Michelle Goldberg. I'm Ross Douthat. I'm David Leonhardt, and this is The Argument. This week, is President Trump causing white supremacist terrorism, or is he a red herring? This kind of violence precedes Trump. Then, what does a fair college admission system look like? There were still efforts by these schools to not admit exclusively the stupidest heirs of shipping families. And finally, a recommendation. It is one of the great scams of our age. In an interview last week, President Trump suggested that his supporters might resort to violence if they didn't get their way. Two days later, a gunman killed at least 50 people in two mosques in New Zealand. And the suspected killer's manifesto cited Trump's friendliness to white nationalism. Today, we want to talk about whether it's fair to draw a connection between Trump and white nationalist violence. Is he part of the problem or is he a symptom of an underlying illness? To talk about this and more, our colleague Jamel Bowie is calling in from Charlottesville, Virginia. Welcome back to the show, Jamel. Thank you for having me. And hello, Michelle and Ross. Hey there. Hey, David. Jamel, how do you think about the state of the white supremacy movement right now? Do you think it's growing? Do you think it's always sort of out there in a small but meaningful way and it's getting more attention right now? So I think it's more or less kind of an ever-present part of American society. It's hard to look at any given period in American history where there has not been some kind of organized movement of like white supremacists and specifically like virulent and violent white supremacists. At times, they even have explicit state sanction. I think what we have to remember is that depending on the times in American history, those movements have kind of a different relationship to society. So the second Ku Klux Klan in the uh, late 19-teens and 1920s exists more or less to bolster mainstream ideas about Americanism and um, the predominance of kind of a white Anglo-Saxon America. In this current iteration, it is taking the kind of autonomous cell model of the 80s and 90s that shows up. Um, Timothy McVeigh, the Oklahoma City bomber, uh, is part of this leaderless resistance is the term they use, and kind of supercharging that. I mean, to, to me, Jamel, what, you know, I have conservative politics that overlaps with other people's populist politics, which in turn overlaps with some people who are sort of scarily close to some of these fringe views. And it seems to me that there's been a big shift, mostly internet and sort of outside events driven in the last five or six years, where there's been a sort of, I think one way to look at it, which is really well illustrated in the horrifying New Zealand case, is a kind of globalization of European anxiety, where you've had a sort of, you know, a large trend towards immigration and cultural conflict around Islam in Europe going going on for years and decades that was sort of brought to a sharp point by the Syrian refugee crisis, the rise of ISIS, the wave of ISIS-inspired bombings, which in turn created this kind of white identitarian theory of the world that then sort of found acolytes in North America 
all the way in Australia and New Zealand that sort of took pieces of the European experience as sort of a normative state of global whiteness that then became an inspiration in these cases for violence. And at the same time, I think it's connected to a kind of what you might call kind of crisis of the white Christian church in the Western world, where you have a lot of children who grow up in what seem like failing culturally irrelevant forms of Christianity, who who often end up with a sort of contempt for Christianity, but don't turn to the left because of that. They turn to this sort of racial identity. And then you have this nihilistic troll culture. And it seems like one of the ways in which there's no politician, as far as I know, anywhere on earth who more kind of effectively bridges 8chan shitposting with European replacement theory, right? That's Donald Trump. And so to me, it's not necessarily that I think Donald Trump has inspired this movement, but I do have to think that his success, right? The fact that if you're going to give up your life in the service of this act of horrific mass violence, it's usually because you think that that horrific act of mass violence is going to get you closer to this grandiose goal. One of the things that Donald Trump has done is made it feel like their dreams are slightly less impossible, right? That a basically white supremacist shit poster can become president of the United States. And so maybe this dreamed for revolution really can happen. I want to home in on Trump's role here. I, I mean, to me, it's really clear that Trump plays a causal role in this. If you look at the rise of racism and anti-Semitism on social media, that's the way I read the data. There's a pretty significant increase in the different data sets. Now, they're imperfect. And I guess I want to see whether any of you, probably most likely Ross, disagrees with the idea. He's not the only cause of this, but the fact that we have a white nationalist as the president of the United States is making this stuff more common. Yeah, I guess I, I think I see it in terms of um, to use uh, okay a decent historical analogy. I see it in terms of the relationship between Andrew Johnson and kind of anti-black vigilante violence in the immediate post-Civil War period. It's not that Andrew Johnson caused any of it, but that he did, didn't give a shit, right? He didn't care much about it. At times when it happened, he excused it. And that was felt and heard by people on the ground. And so his indifference, his occasional sort of like complicity in it then creates an atmosphere where people willing to inflict violence decide that maybe they can get away with it. Or maybe if it's done to send a message, that message will get some kind of amplification by a powerful political leader. And I think that's kind of the important dynamic. I'm not sure I would attribute a causal mechanism, but it is there is a feedback loop happening. The other piece of it is that I feel like Trump's election has convinced these people, has convinced white nationalists that they have much wider support than they'd realized. Right. I mean, I think that most terrorists act out of a sense that they're acting on behalf of a greater silent population. There's a poll out recently that shows that something like 19 percent of people believe that Trump opposes white nationalism. What that tells you is that a large number of his supporters believe that Trump does not, in fact, oppose white nationalism. 
And so, you know, again, I feel like if you, you're kind of willing to take these kind of steps, if you believe that there are people behind you, if you believe that you're going to have some kind of support or even some sort of catalytic effect that you're going to spark some sort of uprising. But I think I'm closer to Jamel's take than Michelle's. I think the right way to understand Trump is that, yeah, he's someone who doesn't give a shit about white nationalism and that the president of the United States is a powerful office with a lot of cultural influence and that undoubtedly has toxic effects on the culture that have some kind of role in spreading these ideas, making them seem more credible and so on. I think calling Trump a white nationalist is a sort of analytic mistake. I mean, it dep- we've had this discussion before what counts as white nationalism, but I think it imputes a level of ideology to him that he doesn't have. I think it's it's more reasonable to call him sort of a bigot or a racist than a white nationalist. I guess I'd put it this way. I think all of these things would be happening with or without Donald Trump. And I think the conversation that we had for most of this episode about the causes is much more important to the next 20 years of world history than what Trump himself is or isn't doing. So I think it's good and right to condemn how Trump handles this stuff and how he enables people. But I don't think ultimately either the most extreme people acting out or the general drift is being driven that much by some idea that Donald Trump was elected and now we can build the white ethnostate. I think the dreams of the white ethnostate are responses to much broader dislocations, anxieties, transformations, of which Trump is himself a kind of particularly striking epiphenomenon. I'm not saying Trump is causing all of this, but I really don't think that this would all be the same if Trump hadn't run his campaign. I mean, Trump has this 30 plus year history of racism, right? Going back to the ads in the newspapers about the Central Park case. And then he runs for office and he runs a more race conscious and racist campaign than we've basically seen in our adult lifetime. And along with that, we have a surge of racism and anti-Semitism online and in graffiti and as best as we can tell in the numbers in actual crimes. And so I'm not saying he's the main cause, but I just don't think it's enough to say that he just doesn't care about white nationalism and that all of this would be happening if he hadn't showed that it's possible to go out and say these things and still be elected president. I mean, I, I guess I think that it's tough for me to disentangle the two. Like, I, I, you know, if you're me and you think that one of like the through lines of kind of the history of Western society from 1945 to the present is like the slow motion collapse of race hierarchy, or at least the slow motion collapse of like race hierarchy in its most explicit forms, and that lots of things are happening in reaction to that, then you can look at Trump. Uh, like Ross said, it's sort of an epiphenomenon of that his entire career, right? Like someone whose casual bigotry and casual racism and acted on racism kind of just makes him a curiosity at first in national life. Um, but as time goes on, and it becomes more part of his public persona. And also, it's hard for me to say, you know, if Trump wasn't there, how much of this would be happening the year, that, actually, the week that Trump announced his campaign, Dylan Roof killed nine people in Charleston, right? So, sort of like this kind of violence precedes Trump. It was in planning before Trump. 
And I, I feel like the most I'm willing to say about like any causal relationship is just that like Trump's campaign, his style, his his disregard, his willingness to elevate people kind of adjacent to that world has <laughs> to borrow, you know, in uh, terminology from the last decade of politics, aiding comfort to the enemy, right? But I'm not sure it's causal. Let's end here. And I'd be interested in each of your thoughts quickly. Where, How do you think this plays with the American public at this point? Trump obviously think it still plays well. I mean, that he ran the closing week of the midterm campaign, basically running what I would describe as this kind of white nationalist message. How much do you think this actually helps him heading into 2020 or hurts him at this point? Jamel? I, mean, I, I think... It's, it's always easy for me to start from like my baseline view of things. And my baseline view of things is that if Trump could somehow stop talking until November 2020, he will win re-election, right? Like background conditions in American society are good enough that if people could just forget that Donald Trump was president, he would win. Donald Trump's problem is that he cannot stop talking, that he cannot stop reminding people that he is president, and he does so in the most kind of aggressive and defensive and disheartening ways. And so to the extent that his language and rhetoric here does that, remind people of all the things they specifically dislike about President Donald Trump, it hurts him and cannot help him. Michelle? You know, Donald Trump is a minority president, right? He was elected with a minority coalition. His reelection depends on, you know, sort of minority rule in the United States and the perpetuation of minority rule in the United States. And so in as much as that's the bet that he's made, the way he keeps that base united, I think, is to keep, you know, giving them what they want, which is a president who will, you know, completely embrace their racial and cultural grievances and desire to spite their enemies. And so if he became a more decent man, which he can't become, he might expand his coalition a little bit, but he would lessen its intensity. I think Michelle's right that there is a portion of Trump's base that sort of responds to not just his comments, but also sort of media attacks on his comments by ending up binding more tightly to him. But in general, I'm with Jamel. I think the only time the sort of flirtation with white nationalism stuff really helped Trump was very early in the Republican primaries when he was trying to build an initial base of support. That's why he started out with birtherism. It helped him become a candidate with supporters. But at this point, you know, the economy is good. A different version of Trumpism that was more authentically populist on economics and was not constantly flirting with white nationalism, I think would be much more electorally effective. I don't think this stuff hurts him as much as... Most people who read the New York Times think it should hurt him, but I don't think it helps him in any meaningful way. Okay, we're going to leave it there and take a quick break, and we will be right back to talk about the big college admissions scandal. It's the story that bourgeois America can't stop talking about. Flurry of new indictments today ensnaring celebrities, CEOs, college coaches in a massive scheme 
to game the college admission system. Last week, federal prosecutors charged 50 people in a scheme to buy spots in elite colleges. The details were amazing, bald lies about athletic prowess, a doctored photo of a football player, straight-up cheating on standardized tests. The story has led many people to ask what the purpose of these elite colleges actually is and what it should be. Ross, you had a thought-provoking argument about this topic this week, and I've been noodling over your argument ever since. So why don't you spin it out for us so we can talk about it? Well, this is this is just a return to my usual theme, which is that meritocracy is a failure and that I was trying to be contrarian relative to people who said, well, look, you know, This shows how meritocracy is corrupted and people can buy their way into schools if they're rich and fake SAT scores and so on. And actually, I mean, I think the faking of SAT scores is actually a testament to meritocracy, right, in the sense that it turns out that the rich kids can't get into these schools unless they literally fake having high enough SAT scores. That hours of tutoring are not enough, basically. The hours of tutoring are not enough, right? So so in, in that sense, if all you're concerned about is, is the system selecting for smart kids, this kind of scandal should not shake your confidence in it. My question is whether it actually makes sense to have a system where you're telling everyone all we're doing is selecting for smart kids and that it is good that elite schools maybe have both affirmative action programs and legacy admission <laughs> programs, and that this is better than a world where the elite schools were sort of purely meritocratic and only admitted kids with 1600s on their SATs. But what is the possible possible defense of legacy admissions? The reason schools do it is that they want to have families and sort of intergenerational loyalties that are sort of invested in the school and the school's success. The more radical argument is that every society has an elite and it's not a bad thing to have elites that have a sense of stewardship and continuity. And legacy admissions are, you know, not the worst way to bring that about, that you want an elite that has some continuity from generation to generation. That is obviously well outside the norm of arguments in our democratic society, but um, it seems to me that it might be true. I'm curious what Jamel thinks of my strange right-wing defense of affirmative action. So this this is like an area of like potential convergence here because I, I, I agree that there is no real meritocracy in American society. And to the extent that there is meritocracy, it kind of is, it's like a transmission, it acts to transmit inherited advantages. So if we accept that, if, if we kind of buy the premise that meritocracy isn't necessarily a great way of, of distributing resources like access to like elite colleges and elite colleges, I'm just going to define here as not just like your Harvard's and your Yale's, but kind of like the highly selective schools overall. Remember with this scandal, some of the kids were trying to get into USC. And I think it's important to add public schools to it, right? I mean, right. Jamal, like, you're talking to us from Charlottesville, the University of Virginia, University of North Carolina, Michigan, Berkeley, they are all part of this as well. Right. UVA, I mean, UVA, I, I'm a UVA grad, and UVA in its conception was basically to cultivate a political and social elite for the state of Virginia. <laughs> that's what it was designed to do. If that's what these institutions are A, actually doing, in addition to their being research institutions, they do provide education. But if they also are cultivating elites, then I'm I'm with Ross. I'd rather I'd rather it be something explicit that we can have a discussion about rather than 
submerged under a bunch of pretense. Two things really influence my thinking here. The first is uh, sociologist Orlando Patterson years ago had a book, The Ordeal of Integration, where he makes a case for affirmative action. And his case for affirmative action isn't about merit. It's simply about in any sufficiently elite organization, what's going to happen is that if people, people are just going to be selecting people who are similar to them. So if we want those institutions to be more diverse, to better reflect the country, then we should just mandate that they take people who look differently. The second thing is the other big college education scandal that has happened over the past this year, and that is the TM Landry College Prep School scandal. It was a small private school in Louisiana, in high poverty town, and the school's graduates were overwhelmingly black, poor, or both. And the school was sending class after class to Ivy League schools. It turns out that what it was doing is it was either falsifying grades and activities or creating kind of fake sob stories that appeal to the the heartstrings of white elites who want to do a solid for a poor black kid from Louisiana. The interesting thing about this is that those kids, many of them did fine at these schools. Maybe they had a hard time for the first year, but they got better and they're doing fine. And that to me says something about the schools themselves, which is that the idea that you have to like score in the top echelon of anything to succeed at them is not true. Right. It's kind of being at the school that makes right, sense. Right. Exactly. And if that's true, then, you know, let's let's drop the pretense of meritocracy. Then let's just say, as, as Ross suggested, that what we're doing here is kind of cultivating an elite. We want that elite to look like the United States, not just in terms of racial diversity, but in regional diversity and religious diversity and so on and so forth. And we go from there. And then we, we make our decisions based off of that versus, again, the pretense, which there are times when I think pretense is actually quite important. American politics uh, the past 20 years is one of them. But here, I think we can drop it somewhat. The thing I don't completely understand, though, is what's the logical extension of the argument that you're making? So if you say, hey, these elite schools should should have more regional diversity than they do, I'm with you. And the University of Texas has this great system that's mostly worked extremely well in which they took what was originally the top 10 percent of each high school class. Um, if you say they should be more racially diverse than they are, more economically diverse, I'm, I'm with you the whole way. But then how do you pick who gets into the University of Texas or the University of Virginia or Harvard once you've done that? I don't think you're actually either Jamel or Ross suggesting that we sort of have a lottery for these slots. I think we do want some meritocracy as part of the process. Right. You want like a balancing of meritocracy right. and yes, representation. Yes, exactly. But, every, but there has always been that balance, right? Like even even in the, you know... To, to reference my most popular column ever, even in the old days of WASP hegemony, right? Like, you know, there was there were still efforts by these schools to not admit exclusively the stupidest heirs of shipping families, right? Like some efforts, but those a, efforts didn't go right, that far. But, but it's all it's. You, I, I think people overestimate how hostile the past was to talent, right? It's, it is, of, co- of course, you want an elite to be talented. But you can say, you know, if you're an elite school, um, we're going to set, you know, a minimum SAT score pegged to the average distribution of SAT scores in this ethnic group or region or whatever. So we're going to ensure that we're not admitting people who can't handle the work at all. You obviously don't get rid of some sort of bias towards merit, but you assume that 
the system right now might be too biased towards merit. And again, this is the elite level. Like I think this is there's a larger conversation here about how Harvard and Yale have pretended that they're in the mass opportunity game, which they're not. They're tiny elite schools. And meanwhile, the rest of American higher ed has pretended that they're all like Harvard and Yale, when in fact, what we need is state schools to have a different approach and Catholic schools to have a different approach and historically black colleges to have a different approach. We need much more investment in community college and vocational education. But definitely this shift in how elite colleges approach things would have to go hand in hand with a shift in like how, you know, mid-level state universities handle things. And there might be a case that like certain kinds of public universities should be more meritocratic and should be, you know, only doing it based on tests and, you know, that you should have a lot of different approaches. I mean, the the one reason why sort of meritocratic ideals are so important is because they create an illusion of fairness around what's an extremely unfair system. And so the underlying kind of structural thing here is that we have such a massively unequal society that we have this insane kind of funnel system in which we decide who deserves, you know, not just opportunity, but sort of, you know, dignity, health, um, a decent life, right? And so once you start kind of saying that we're going to allocate a healthy existence through getting into these few schools, which in many cases means kind of excelling on these standardized tests, you completely deform educational incentives starting pretty far back. And then you make the stakes of this process just kind of intolerably high for everyone. One thing I want to add to this discussion, just as I think being from Virginia, having attended a public school, part of the solution here uh, in terms of taking pressure and taking weight off of the scramble to get into sort of like ultra elite schools is in addition to having a more equal society, also having a society where opportunities are just more broadly distributed to really uh, succeed in a major way. You have to kind of uproot yourself from your community and move to a major city, maybe even in a completely different state. It does kind of make it more important than to attain some kind of credential that is recognized nationally, which is what Harvard, a Harvard degree is or a Yale degree is. But if you can get an education at Virginia Tech, and and then that, and then find an opportunity in Virginia or in North Carolina, and kind of things are more regional in terms of the distribution of like elites, then it kind of diffuses all of this tension. I mean, that was the American system for a long time that you didn't you had some national elite, but it was a narrow elite, and there were regional elites that you could get into. And I mean, I think it is still especially the case in the South. Uh, Jamel, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but my sense is that these sort of regional schools have more pull in the South than elsewhere. And that on the coasts, it's sort of all the Ivy hierarchy that that people think about. This is good because I was the most cynical person in the first segment. I think I'm the least cynical person in this segment. I mean, to me, this is not an illusion of meritocracy. It's a highly flawed meritocracy. And I'm really glad that this scandal is pushing colleges to think more about the ways in which they're not meritocratic. But the one way in which I think I am supremely cynical is sports. The whole reason that people were able to get these kids in is because of the ludicrously large bonuses that athletes get when applying 
and the huge share of students at these schools who are athletes. I mentioned this week in my email newsletter that about 20% of students at Williams College, an elite college in Massachusetts, are recruited athletes. It turns out I was way too conservative. It's closer to 30%. 30% of entering students at Williams College each year are recruited athletes, and Williams is not some massive outlier. Do you all agree with me that a system in which sports played a smaller role, I'm not saying no role, but a smaller role in higher education would be healthy? I would say no role. No role. I, 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 I would say this. I think a world where sports played less of a role at big state schools would be better. I think there's a lot of you know evidence that sort of the effects of big-time sports, big-time college programs on campus culture is really toxic. I think having jocks at elite schools is is fine. So, Ross, you think the current level is is okay? You think having 25 or 30 percent of students at these schools be recruited athletes, many in sports that no one goes out to watch, many in sports that are overwhelmingly white and affluent, that's I mean, okay? Look, if you're asking, would I cut it in order to have big quotas for conservative Catholics? Of course, of course I would. <laughs> so, you know, everyone knows that I am a sports hater, but I also... You know, I don't, instead of sort of lowering the stakes by offering more routes into these kind of elite schools, it seems to me that this sports culture just ends up kind of raising them by expecting kids to excel along all these different axes or expecting them to, you know, kind of prove some like really fraudulent kind of well-roundedness. I feel like you talk to people and I wasn't part of this culture at all. I mean, I don't think I even really knew what the Ivy League schools were when I was applying to school. Um, I was just so there was nobody really shepherding me through this process. And so I'm sort of an outsider to it. But now I'm a parent and the thing that I dread for my child, for my children the most is sort of trying to put them through all of these different paces or make them spend, you know, their one and only adolescence um, engaging in kind of pointless extracurricular activities or test prepping or doing all of the things that get you ready for this Hunger Games competition. And so it seems like we've created this culture where just like entire families are supposed to orient their lives to getting through a process that is both sort of corrupted and pointless. You know, it's not just about how we create the elite. It's such a profound waste of time and energy and, you know, the limited number of days we have on this earth. I I think we're all parents uh, whose kids are thankfully too young to be fully immersed in this madness. But the truth is, you know, that we you know we can joke about the idea of replacing the system with a lottery but frankly wouldn't it be kind of fantastic if it was just this totally random lottery and there was nothing you could do as a parent and on that utopian note we will leave this discussion jamal thank you so much for joining us thank you so much for having me you look around your business and see inefficiency everywhere So you should know these numbers. 37,000, the number of businesses which have upgraded to the number one cloud financial system, NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite just turned 25. That's 25 years of helping businesses streamline their finances and reduce costs. 1, 
Because your unique business deserves a customized solution. And that's NetSuite. Learn more when you download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist absolutely free at netsuite.com matter. That's netsuite.com matter. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. And the very first place that you can get the newest episodes of our podcast, it's a full day and a half before they appear anywhere else online, is the New York Times audio app. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, plus This American Life shorts, which are handpicked stories for when you want something, you know, short. That's only at the New York Times audio app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. Now it's time for our weekly recommendation when we give you a suggestion of something to take your mind off of politics. This week, it's your turn, Michelle. What do you have for us? So I'm a little late to this, but I'm going to recommend the ABC um, podcast, The Dropout. It's a series about Elizabeth Holmes and the kind of ginormous scam that was Theranos. And it is one of the great scams of our age. You know, probably a lot of our listeners know this, right? That was meant to revolutionize the way blood tests were done and revolutionize the healthcare sector. And it had all these super powerful people investing in it. And she had like little Theranos clinics set up in Walgreens. And it was just a total scam. It just didn't work. And it's this amazing thing because... You listen as all of these people inside the company know that this thing doesn't work. They know that it's a scam. And yet it gets bigger and bigger. She's on more and more magazine covers. She's interviewed by Bill Clinton at the Clinton Global Initiative. You know, she becomes the youngest ever female self-made billionaire. And it's all built on nothing. And yeah, and it took so long to come out. I mean, it's both, you know, sort of a fascinating story in its own right and such a perfect metaphor for our age of grift. Well, I lis- I've listened to it, too, and I really liked it. And w- at one point I thought to myself, oh, my goodness, if someone were trying to prank Silicon Valley to come up with the biggest cliche of a company that was just a scam, this is what they do. I mean, they dress like Steve Jobs the way she did. Right. The one thing I think it's important to add is that much of this is based on reporting by John Carreyrou of the Wall Street Journal, and he has a book out on the scandal called Bad Blood, and although I haven't read it, a couple friends of mine have, and they say it's great and is an enormously quick read. So there's the documentary, there's the book, and there's the podcast. My, my wife has read the book and highly recommends it, so I can recommend it by proxy. Excellent. Michelle, again, what's the name of the podcast? It's called The Dropout. We're going to end this week's episode by hearing from you, our listeners. A lot of you had strong opinions about our episode last week, and we wanted to take a moment to give you a chance to air your grievances and opinions. Here goes. Hey, guys. Hi. My name is Summer. Hi. My name is Kathy Keeler. Hi. My name is Jonathan Power. Hey, this is Amir calling from Los Angeles, California. I'm calling about Ross's love of Spindrift. I just wanted to say, when Ross was recommending Spindrift at the end of the episode... I was just listening to the bit at the end of the episode where you were talking about sparkling water. Ross, your idea about seltzer water is one of the best recommendations I've heard. I just wanted to reinforce how amazing Spindrift is. (laughs) Ross, I appreciate your recommendation for Spindrift, 
Um, and at the same time, you don't need a blind taste test to explain why or how it tastes better. The reason it tastes way better is because it actually has literal fruit juice in it that has three grams of sugar in each can. That stuff's pretty good, but it's unfair to make that like your favorite because it's sweetened. It has fruit juice in it. I wanted to just say one word to you. Soda stream. I love the seltzer it makes. And you can also control the amount of bubbles. You'll be helping the environment, saving yourself some money, and also having as much bubbles as you like. Kroger has these cola-flavored sparkling waters. They have regular <laughs> cola, Dr. Pepper, and root beer. So those are my favorite. Enjoy. Bye-bye. I hope you all have a great day. Bye. Thanks. So that's my recommendation for this week. Thanks. Thanks, guys. I love the podcast. So, 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 so we're we're starting a seltzer podcast, obviously. So apparently, we already have. We're, we have. And after that, as you guys know, after that podcast, I became a convert. Um, you know, it's like the only time I think I will ever say that Ross was totally right. A convert, not just to seltzer, but to spindrift. Yeah, not to Catholicism <laughs> or conservatism. <laughs> it's a gateway drug, Michelle. <laughs> well, here, let me leave you all with this. As you can obviously tell, we like to hear your feedback, so please leave us a voicemail at 347-915-4324. That's 347-915-4324. No doubt there are a few seltzer brands that we have not yet mentioned on this show. You can also email us at argument at nytimes.com. If you like what you hear, we would very much like it if you would leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts. This week's show was produced by Alex Laughlin for Transmitter Media and edited by Lacey Roberts. Our executive producer is Greta Cohn. We had help from Tyson Evans, Phoebe Lett, Ian Prasad-Philbrick, and Francis Ying. Our theme was composed by Allison Leighton-Brown. We will see you back here next week. Ross, have you listened to it? I only listen to our podcast. Has it been on our podcast? Well, you know. Ready to set off on your captivating journey into the botanical world? NYBG's brand new online education program, Plant Studio, offers bite-sized courses tailor-made for you to pursue your passion as a budding plant person. Guided by professionals, dig into gardening, botany, floral design, landscape design, and more. Grow your skills with online learning your way. Register at nybg.org.